recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. Today is Saturday, October 4th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In the last part of Martin Luther's treatise on the Jews and their wives, Luther gave us what I think is an excellent example of how, with one false premise, a man can build an argument that sounds good on a surface, but is really about as flimsy as the proverbial house of cards. His contention was that the desire of all nations mentioned in Haggai 2.7 must be a reference to Christ. However, a mere examination of the grammar precludes the validity of his interpretation. And the phrase certainly refers to what all the pagan nations had truly desired, the silver and the gold described in Haggai 2.8. Furthermore, because Luther's argument seems to extol Christ, it is difficult for anyone to refute it without being seen in the position of not extolling Christ. Christians, of course, do not want to be seen in such a position. However, we must bear in mind that no lie is the truth, and Christ does not need our lies for his glorification. That is why Paul asked the rhetorical question found in Romans chapter 3, where he said, Indeed, if the truth of Yahweh were increased by my lie for his honor, why then am I still judged as a wrongdoer? So, we do not lie, since even if our lie magnifies Christ, we are still liars. Therefore, it is most important to build our scriptural arguments and the Weltanschauung, the worldview which we get from scripture, which is what, what is most integral to our daily lives. It is most important to build those things on well-studied and firmly grounded factual evidence to the best of our fleshly ability. We began this presentation of Luther's thesis maybe six months ago, I don't know, it's been a while, as a critical examination which intends to be as balanced as possible. Luther's errors, however, are even greater and deeper than we noticed in our original precursory inspection of the material. However, we really do, we really do want to see Luther do well, as we believe that Luther was on the side of good, and he intended to do good things in spite of all his faults. He also knew instinctually that the Jews were devils, and as Paul of Tarsus says, that they were adverse to all men that they were not good, that they were destroyers of society. But Luther's theology was clearly affected by his Roman Catholic training, and that is fully evident in his approach to Scripture, in spite of the fact that he did reject many of the greater errors 
of the Roman Church of his day. He was even more adversely affected because he rather persistently followed and adopted the arguments of the Converso Jews, Lyra and Bergensis. Um, I can't get off this topic because Luther can't get off this topic. This is the worst thing that a Christian can do, to believe the lies of the Jews concerning Scripture. It's like learning truth and good from the devil. It just doesn't fly. It seems that not only Luther, but the entire medieval church was affected in this same manner. And the doctrines propagated by these Jews have affected all Christian thought unto this very day. They were the most influential Bible commentators of the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. And they influenced every subsequent Bible commentator down to this very day. This, 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 these plain lies, this bullshit being taught about Scripture and the identity of the Jews and the identity of the so-called Gentiles, the language, the paradigm, we've gotten it all from the Jews. That's sick. Learning about God from the devil. If Luther had truly followed Christ, he may not have made such a horrible error. Luther was a man in conflict with himself. He professed that the Jews were devils based upon their character, but he never took the final step in realizing that their evil character was genetic, that a Jew could not be transformed to be a Christian. So following Lyra and Bergensis, whom Luther considered to be noble men, as he calls them, in part one in the opening paragraphs of this essay, the lies of the Jews concerning their identity and concerning the identity of the true heirs of the covenant are safely upheld. World Jewry is forever legitimized in the eyes of unsuspecting Christians. And Luther also upholds the opportunity for the imagined conversion of other devils to Christ in the future, for the further infiltration of the Christian ecclesia by the enemies of God. Here at the beginning of part A of his treatise, Luther, while being dismissive of the rest of Haggai's prophecy after discussing verses 7 and 8, at great length, and, and nine, begins by building another argument based on a fragment of Haggai 2, verse 9, where it says in the King James Version, and in this place will I give peace. With this, we shall commence with this next part of Martin Luther's treatise. Part A. break off here and leave the last part of Haggai to others. The section in which he prophecies that the Lord, as he says, will give peace in this place. Referring to Haggai 2.9. Can it be possible that this applies to the time from Antiochus up to the present 
during which the Jews have experienced every misfortune and are still in exile. For there shall be peace in this place, says the Lord. The place is still there. The temple and the peace have vanished. No doubt the Jews will be able to interpret this. The history books inform me that there was but little peace prior to Antiochus for about 300 years, and subsequent to that time, not at all down to the present hour, except for the peace that reigned at the time of the Maccabees, as I have already said, I shall leave this to others. And Luther claims here that there's no peace from the time of Haggai until the time of Antiochus, which is from about the time of the building of the Second Temple down to the time of a, the, the um, defilement of the Temple, which happened about 156 B.C. Luther can really cite nothing specific about the conditions in Jerusalem from the time of Haggai to the time that the temple was spoiled by Antiochus and the uprising of the Maccabees. And there very well seems to have been a long period of relative peace in Judea at this time. Yes, there was war brought by the Persians all over the Greek world, from Sicily to Anatolia. But under Persian rule, there was relative peace in Judea. And that time period of relative peace spanned as long as 350 years. If indeed the words of Haggai must be interpreted to cover a longer period, then that time of peace still has not come because the children of Israel have not yet been gathered to their Messiah. Both Daniel and the words of Christ agree that Jerusalem would lie desolate and be trampled down by the heathen until the fulfillment of the times of the nations. That's evident in Daniel 8.13, Daniel 9, verses 26-27, and Luke 21-24. Luther, apparently, shall leave this to others, as he says, because the entire prophecy of Haggai, as we noted covering the later half of part 7, of his essay, the entire prophecy of Haggai does not fit his assertion concerning the identification of the desire of all nations with Christ. It certainly does not refer to Christ. Luther says, finally, we must lend ear to the great prophet Daniel, a special angel with a proper name, Gabriel, talks with him. And let me state that the name Gabriel means warrior of God. He appears in Daniel in visions in Daniel's chapters 8 and 9. And Daniel describes him as a man. Gabriel is also the name of the angel or messenger which appeared to Zacharias as it is recorded in Luke chapter 1. Luther goes on to say, the like of this is not found elsewhere in the Old Testament. And that's not really true because there were angels who had visited Lot and they were described as men and they were described as angels, just like Gabriel. Yet they certainly did appear to have supernatural abilities. 
in the description of the story of Lot and his visit by the angels and the blinding of the men of Sodom who surrounded Lot's house endeavoring to defile those angels. So Luther, he gets carried away in his arguments and says a lot of things flippantly. He says, the fact that the angel is mentioned by name marks it as something extraordinary, and that is true. The angels in Lot were not mentioned by name, but they were certainly fully described. This is what he tells Daniel. Seventy weeks of years, a decree concerning your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place, which the King James reads, the most holy. And it doesn't necessarily refer to a place. That's the way Luther has interpreted the phrase. He says, we cannot now discuss this rich text, which actually is one of the foremost in all scripture. And, as is only natural, everybody has reflected on it. For it not only fixes the time of Christ's advent, but also foretells what he will do. Namely, take away sin, bring in righteousness, and do this by means of his death. It establishes Christ as the high priest, as, I'm sorry, as the priest who bears the sin of the whole world. This, I say, we must now set aside and deal only with the question of the time, as we determined to do. Whether such a Messiah or priest has already come or is still come, this we do for the strengthening of our faith against all devils and men. And, and Luther is absolutely right about Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks vision. It is the signal prophecy by which the Christ and the coming can, and his coming can actually be dated. Luther is correct in his assessment of Daniel chapter 9. Christ introduced righteousness to the Adamic world, but he did not bring peace to Jerusalem. Rather, he brought a sword. He brought division by his own mouth. In the first place, Luther says, there is complete agreement on this, that the 70 weeks are not weeks of days, but of years, that one week comprises seven years, which produces a sum total of 490 years. That is the first point. Second, it is also agreed that these 70 weeks had ended when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. And here Luther correctly assesses the time frame of the prophecy laid out in Daniel chapter 9, even if he doesn't give the details. So we see how old a correct interpretation of Daniel chapter 9 actually is, that it was recognized by Christians in Luther's day to be correct. It was actually, it was actually had to be the method that the apostles themselves used. However, today's crazy evangelicals 
And even the Lutherans do not follow Luther in this assessment of Daniel chapter 9. Instead, today's evangelicals have come to imagine that for the last week of this prophecy of Daniel, the 70th, the 70th week, that that describes Satan and not Christ, and that it is still far off sometime in the future. Of course, today's evangelicals are lunatics, because the last week of the prophecy actually does describe the ministry of Christ and the confirmation of the new covenant, which was prophesied by Jeremiah and by Ezekiel. So Luther was right. The 70 weeks was completed with Christ. Luther did not, like today's evangelicals do, Luther did not try to break off that week, push it thousands of years into the future, and promote their harebrained interpretation of futurism, which we call futurism. Their harebrained interpretation of scripture, which we call futurism. Luther says, there is no difference of opinion on these two points. So at one time, apparently all Christians were united in believing the 70 weeks of Daniel were fulfilled in Christ. And he says, although many are in, a, in the dark when it comes to the matter of knowing the precise time of which these 70 weeks began and when they terminated. It is not necessary for us to settle this question here, since it is generally assumed that they were fulfilled about the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. This will suffice for the presence and, and, and for the present. And, and as an aside, there is a precise chronology of the time of Nehemiah, Ezra, and Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy available at Christogenia in both part two of our presentation of Mark chapter 13, which we made about three years ago, and also in a separate article. Luther says, if this is true, as it must be true, since after the destruction of Jerusalem, none of the 70 weeks was left. And here Luther unwittingly refutes the modern futurists. And he says, then the Messiah must have come before the destruction of Jerusalem, while something of those 70 weeks still remained, namely the last week. As the text later clearly and convincingly attests, after the seven and 62 weeks, that is, after 69 weeks, which would be 483 prophetic years. Namely, in the last, or 70th week, Christ will be killed. In such a way, however, that he will become alive again. For the angel says that he shall make a strong covenant with many in the last week. Daniel 9.27 This he cannot do while dead, he must be alive. To make a covenant can have no other meaning than to fulfill God's promise given to the fathers, namely, to disseminate the blessing Abraham, the blessing promised in Abraham's seed to all the Gentiles. And, and that's a really corrupted reading of the, blessed, the, the promises to Abraham. 
as the angel states earlier, verse 24, the, the visions and prophecies shall be sealed or fulfilled. This requires a live Messiah who, however, has previously been killed. But the Jews will have none of this. Therefore, we shall let it rest at that and hold to our opinion that the Messiah must have appeared during these 70 weeks. This the Jews cannot refute. And I, I wish, and he might do it yet, that Luther had expounded on his interpretation of the blessings to Abraham so that that can be critiqued and corrected. The Jews have always been vexed by the book of Daniel, and, and especially Daniel chapter 9. And certain Jews, and I've seen these admissions myself, certain Jews will even admit that part of Daniel is concealed by the rabbis when the book is read in their synagogues. It is evident in the scriptures that not only the Magi from Persia, which we see in the opening chapters of the book of Matthew, but also the men who became apostles, which we see in John chapter 1 at verse 41, and the Samaritan woman who was an Israelite, who Christ met at the well near Mount Gerizim, as we see in John chapter 4, verse 25, all these people were anticipating the Messiah at this time, at the time of the beginning of the ministry of Christ. A serious examination of Josephus' antiquities reveals a messianic fervor throughout Judea, during which many men claimed to be the Messiah, and, and led rebellions against the Romans and were put down. Those people must have had, even though it was, it, it was wayward, those people must have had, as a source, the same chapter of Daniel for their understanding. Ostensibly, they all knew how to interpret this famous prophecy in Daniel. Luther recognizes this in his next paragraph where he says, for in their books as well as in certain histories, we learn that not just a few Jews, but all of Jewry at that time assumed that the Messiah must have come or must be present at that very moment. And, and Luther makes the common mistake that Judea is tantamount to Jewry, but it is not. Except that Luther did not pay enough attention to Judean and Jewish history. And he says, this is what we want to hear. When Herod was forcibly made king of Judah and Israel by the Romans, the Jews surely realized that the scepter would thus depart from them. And once again, Luther bases his arguments on his own peculiar interpretation of, Jeremiah, of, of Genesis 49.10. The truth is that the Levitical Maccabees could not have ever held the scepter and the position of lawgiver which belonged to Judah and fulfill Genesis 49.10. 
That is a refutation of Genesis 49.10. Furthermore, while Judea was sometimes referred to in Scripture as Israel, since it was indeed what little was left of Israel, Israel meaning the people under the law and the prophets, it was not properly Israel in the sense that Luther uses the term, because most of Israel and Judah were spread abroad long before the time of Christ, and they were no longer under the law and the prophets. They were practicing paganism, of course, because of the promises and oaths of their parents. They were bound to the law and the prophets, but they didn't know that. Those people were never called Jews. And Luther is oblivious to their identification, or perhaps even to their very existence. He says, speaking of the Judeans and Herod's being appointed king over them, Luther says, they resisted this move vigorously, and in the 30 years of their resistance, Many thousands of Jews were slain and much blood was shed until they finally surrendered in exhaustion. And here Luther is asserting that the people of Judah or Judea resisted the kingship of Herod vigorously. Josephus described at length how Herod had slain the nobles of Jerusalem. There was some resistance to him, eliminating any competition he may have had for the control of Judea. Herod gave the last of the heirs of the, of, of the Levitical high priesthood. Herod gave Antigonus up to the Romans. And he had also had Hyrcanus too slain. But Josephus never described any opposition to Herod to quite the extent that Luther describes it. Much of the opposition of the time was towards Rome, and Herod was basically acting as an agent of Rome. But many of the people loved Herod. They loved Herod because of his undertakings of public works, his building up of the facade of Judea, building cities, water projects, temples, monuments. Herod was sort of the Franklin Roosevelt of first century Judea. That's exactly what he was. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, in verse 3, the apostle indicates that all Jerusalem was on the side of Herod in fearing that a Messiah was born in Israel. These are the antecedents of today's Jews. And Herod claims, in the I'm sorry, and Josephus goes on to claim, in the meantime, the Jews looked about for the Messiah. And Luther fails to properly distinguish between two groups of people in Judea. There was one group who clearly feared the coming of a Messiah. There was another group of people in, Judea, in Judah who desired the coming of the Messiah. 
Luther seems oblivious to those two groups. Those two groups are portrayed as being rather consistent all throughout the Gospels, and Luther fails to distinguish between them. He characterizes one group or the other with vague generalizations. He says, this Thus, a hue and cry arose that the Messiah had been born, as in truth he had been, for our Lord Christ was born in the 30th year of Herod's reign. And let me say that popular chronologies, which we should contend with because they are not accurate, popular chronologies put the death of Herod in 4 B.C., and they put his reign as king from his appointment by Rome as 33 years. Other chronologies are in contention. So further details not admitted to us, not having further details. It is not entirely certain what year Luther intends here. He doesn't fill in some of the blanks for us as to how he anchors his chronology. He goes on to say, but Herod forcibly suppressed this report, slaying all the young children in the region of Bethlehem, which is reported in Matthew, in his gospel, and and that's fine. It's not reported in Josephus, unfortunately, but it's really not the significant event that most people envision it to be, Bethlehem was sparsely populated hill country. Herod, according to Matthew, only killed the children a couple of years and downward in in sparsely populated hill country. That could mean only a couple of dozen children at the most. And that being the case, Historians like Josephus could easily overlook such an incident, not because it wasn't a horrendous incident, but because in first century Judea, there was so much mayhem and, 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 and uprisings and, and revolts, and, and, and Roman soldiers got involved many times in, in the deaths of many people. So... It was sort of an insignificant event on the grand scale of things if you are a historian discussing the history of the nation over a lengthy period of time. So it doesn't disprove the gospel that Josephus did not mention the slaughter of the children of Bethlehem. Not at all. There's a lot of things that were important, important events and horrendous events in first century Judea that Josephus failed to mention or that Josephus mentions and are not mentioned in the gospel or that the gospel mentions and, and they can be identified with one of several incidents in Josephus and it's not entirely clear. So it, it was a pretty... Um, violent and hectic century in Judea. And, and the result, the end result is easily seen with, with the, um, the rebellion that led to the destruction of Jerusalem.
But Herod forcibly suppressed this report, slaying all the young children in the region of Bethlehem, so that our Lord was to be, had to be taken for refuge to Egypt. Herod even killed his own son. And here Josephus makes a huge, uh, I'm sorry, Martin Luther makes a, a, a uh, huge speculation and presents it as truth, and it's simply wrong. He says, Herod even killed his own son because he was born of a Jewish mother. He's referring to Mariam, the granddaughter of Hyrcanus I, and um, his sons by her. She had married Herod. He killed her, too. He killed her in 28 B.C. He was worried that through this son, the scepter might revert to the Jews, and that he might gain the Jews' loyalty since, as Philo records, the rumor of the birth of Christ had been spread abroad. And there's a couple of huge mistakes here by Luther. The um, truth is that Herod killed two of his sons for different reasons, two of his sons by Maryam. There is no extant evidence that Philo, who was a philosopher in Alexandria, and lived until about 47 AD, ever mentioned Christ, or even had a reason to. Therefore, I do not know what Luther refers to by citing him here. Evidently, Philo did write of the expectation of a Messiah, but that has little to do with the actual birth of Christ. Many men arose in first century Judea claiming to be a Messiah. Since Philo was born in 25 B.C. and was only 18 years old in 7 B.C., it is unlikely that Philo's reports, which were made much later, had anything to do with Herod's actions. Herod the Edomite had married Maryam, who was the granddaughter on her mother's side of her family and the grandniece on her father's side of Hyrcanus II, and the daughter of Alexander, the Maccabee. She had two sons by him, who were named Aristobulus and Alexandros, and they were slain by their father Herod at a time which can be estimated to be around 7 B.C., which was actually several years before the birth of Christ. Their death is attributed by Josephus to other reasons, and Luther has no real evidence by which to tie their death to the birth of Christ. No evidence whatsoever. This is especially evident because they were both grown men when they were slain. Aristobulus was born about 31 B.C., so he was 24 years old. His brother Alexandros was born about 35 B.C., so he was perhaps 28 years old. Mariam was slain by Herod around 28 B.C. Luther seems to be inferring something which is patently false, and his license to do it seems to come only from the convenient circumstances of a very loose chronology of certain events. At best, he is a shoddy researcher because he quickly jumps 
to convenient conclusions. The most striking refutation of this argument which Luther makes is to turn to the opening paragraphs of Josephus' Antiquities, Book 17. At the end of Book 16, Josephus describes how Herod had his sons put to death. At the beginning of Book 17, Josephus describes how well Herod treated his grandsons, the sons of Aristobulus and Alexandros, making special arrangements for them by betrothing them to notable women because there was some remorse over leaving them fatherless. However, if Herod feared his sons for the reasons which Luther imagines that the Messiah would come through them because of their mother's connection to the Maccabees, then Herod would have killed his grandsons as well. Rather than providing for their futures, Luther should have thought about this argument a little harder before he made it. And arguments like this that are easily defused because a researcher jumps to an errant conclusion, he jumps to that conclusion because it's convenient. Arguments doing that and making such arguments is really um, to Luther's discredit. And a lot of people do it. A lot of people do it in Christian identity. They, they want to believe something's true because it fits into their paradigm and they don't research it thoroughly enough. And we could make honest mistakes, but if we want to believe something's true because it fits our paradigm and we hadn't researched it thoroughly enough and it's so easily refuted, that's why we should do our homework before we say anything or write anything of note. Back to Luther. As our evangelists relate, more than 30 years later, John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness and proclaims that the Lord had not only been born, but also was ready among them and would reign shortly after him. And those last words there, I don't know where Luther got them from. By evangelists, Luther refers to the writers of the Gospels. However, we do not know where John the Baptist talked about Christ reigning shortly after him. John did not go so far as to say that. Suddenly, he says, thereafter Christ himself appears, preaches, and performs great miracles so that the Jews hope that now, after the loss of the scepter, Shiloh had come. And Luther insists that Genesis 49 says that, that, that when Judah loses the scepter, Shiloh would come. But that's not what Genesis 49.10 says. Genesis 49.10 says the opposite, that Judah would hold the scepter until Shiloh comes. Luther is making another argument of convenience, which we addressed at length in the earlier segments of this series. And it's dishonest. There is no indication in Scripture that the apostles or others in Judea made the same connection which Luther does 
And the people were disappointed that Christ actually rejected the kingship. From John 6, verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Luther says, but the chief priests, the rulers, and their followers took offense at the person, since he did not appear as a mighty king, but wandered about as a poor beggar. And this is true. And Isaiah prophesied of this in, in the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, especially. They had made up their mind that the Messiah would unite the Jews and not only wrest the scepter from the foreign king, meaning the Caesar, the Romans, or Herod the Edomite, but also subdue the Romans and all the world under himself with the sword and installing them as mighty princes over all the Gentiles. When they were disappointed in these expectations, the noble blood and circumcised saints were vexed as people who had the promise of the kingdom and could not attain it through this beggar. Therefore, they despised him and did not accept him. And where Luther errs is imagining that the Jews are the people of Israel because the people of Israel had indeed fulfilled these things exactly as Luther states it here. He's merely applying this and the fulfillment of these prophecies to the wrong people. Here Luther con confounds the emotions of the Edomite usurpers with those of the true Israelites. The Edomite usurpers rejected the very notion of the kingship of Christ. They didn't reject Christ as king. They rejected the notion of the kingship of Christ, no matter who he was. From Matthew chapter 2, from verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Judeans? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. The child that was born could have been a mighty conqueror. The Jews didn't want to hear it. The Edomites in Jerusalem, those, the courtesans of Herod, who heard this, they were troubled right along with Herod. They did not countenance the idea of any other king. Luke chapter 19, but his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And finally, from John chapter 19, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. They weren't looking for another king. Why does Luther portray them as they were looking for another king? 
but contrary to the rebellion against the Christ and the rule of God, which was openly exhibited by the Edomites, and there were three witnesses, the true Israelites of Judea were disappointed that Christ rejected the scepter. They didn't reject Christ. They were disappointed that Christ rejected the scepter at that time, and that is what John chapter 12 portrays. I'm sorry, John 6.15, when Jesus therefore perceived they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Luther confounds all of this. He does not distinguish between the two groups of people. One group didn't want anybody to be king but Caesar because they were comfortable in their position. The other group wanted the poor ragged Christ to be their king. But Christ didn't want to be their king because it was not yet his time. Luther makes no distinguishing between these two groups and does us a great disservice by not making the distinction. Likewise, from Acts chapter 1, speaking of the apostles. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. The question represents the understanding of the apostles at the end of the ministry of Christ, that they did think that he was to deliver Israel at that time. They didn't understand the identity of the Romans either. The law and the prophets show that God himself had another plan. The first century Christians did not fully understand that the Messiah would have a second advent upon which he would take the scepter. Luther also lacked that understanding. Christ himself professes that understanding in Revelation in chapter 19, for example. Of course, Israel was actually spread far and wide outside of Palestine. Things which were only taught later by Paul of Tarsus, although they were alluded to in the Gospels, especially in John and in Luke. These things were totally missed by Martin Luther. But the situation in Judea was not necessarily connected to the promises of Judas, Scepter, and David's throne. And those things were being fulfilled outside of, outside of Palestine, as many other scriptures attest. One of those scriptures is 2 Samuel 7.10. And when Luther commented at length on 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
earlier in this essay, he skipped right over verse 10 while commenting on that very scripture. Luther goes on to say, But when they disdained John and his Christ's message and miracles, meaning John the Baptist, reviling them as the deeds of Beelzebub, he spoiled and ruined manners entirely. He rebuked and chided them severely, something he should not, of course, have done, for being greedy, evil, and disobedient children, and Luther speaking tongue-in-cheek sarcastically when he said that, that Christ should not have rebuked the Jews. For being greedy, evil, and disobedient children, false teachers, seducers of the people, etc., in brief, a brood of serpents and children of the devil. Luther correctly identified the Jews here, but he missed the fact that they were literal children of the devil and not merely children of the devil because of their bad behavior. They were not bad Israelites. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Rather, they were devils which had infiltrated ancient Israel. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit. They were not good people gone bad, but bad people posing as good. On the other hand, Luther says, he was friendly to sinners and tax collectors, to Gentiles and to Romans, giving the impression that he was the foe of the people of Israel and the friend of Gentiles and villains. And, and that would be the simplistic impression that one could have reading scripture on its surface. That was the impression of the usurpers in power, but Christ was only the friend of Gentiles and villains when those Gentiles and villains were actually his lost sheep, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Luther did not take the time required to understand that. He had the tools in his library he was also blinded by the providence of God. He goes on to say, Now the fat was really in the fire. They grew wrathful, bitter and hateful, and ranted against him. Finally, they contrived a plot to kill him, and that is what they did. They crucified him as ignominiously as possible. They gave free reign to their anger so that even the Gentile Pilate noticed this and testified that they were condemning and killing him out of hatred and envy, innocently and without cause. And this assessment is valid, except that Luther erroneously accepted the later definition, Jewish definition of the word, which is often translated as Gentile. When they had executed this false messiah, that is the conception they wanted to convey of him. That's Luther's parenthetical remark. They still did not abandon the delusion that the Messiah had to be at hand or nearby. They constantly murmured against the Romans because of the scepter. And Luther is again confounding the disparate views of disparate groups.
yes, there were Israelites who were chagrined that they were being ruled over by the Romans, by pagans. However, there were the Edomites in Judea who were very comfortable with the rule of the Romans until until after the time of Christ, until the Romans began to demand things of them and, and, and violate their special status which they had in the empire. And, and that led to the, um, to the dissension. And, and that started in the days of Pilate and escalated in the days of Claudius and came to a head in the days of Nero. That was a process. Soon, too, the rumor circulated that Jesus, whom they had killed, had again arisen, and that he was now really being proclaimed openly and freely as the Messiah. The people in the city of Jerusalem were adhering to him, as well as the Gentiles in Antioch and everywhere in the country. Now they really had their hands full. They had to oppose this dead Messiah and his followers, lest he be accepted and resurrected and as the Messiah. They also had to oppose the Romans, lest their hope-for Messiah be forever bereft of the scepter. And Luther is again ignoring the fact that Christ continued to reject the assumption of the scepter after his resurrection, as Acts chapter 1 insists or attests. At one place, a slaughter of the Christians was initiated. At another, an uprising against the Romans. To these tactics, they devoted themselves for approximately 40 years until the Romans finally were constrained to lay waste country and city. The delusion regarding their false Christ and their persecution of the true Christ cost them 11 times 100,000, as Josephus reports, and Josephus does report that, 1.1 million Judeans were killed from 65 to 70 A.D., according to Josephus. Together with the most horrible devastation of country and city, as well as the forfeiture of scepter, temple, priesthood, and all that they possessed. And Josephus is, is telling, he's telling us that the scepter was forfeited in 70 AD. And he hands it to Christ. But none of that is true. That's a very poor interpretation of scripture it's also sadly the prevailing interpretation of scripture these edomites upon whom these edomites upon whom these things happened these were the people upon whom the days of vengeance had come according to christ himself in luke chapter 21 in verse 22 these Edomites, and Luther imagines these people to be Judah and Israel, these Edomites, upon whom these things had come, they were Satan 
according to Paul in Romans 16.20, and according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, these things didn't happen to Israel. These things happened to Satan. These people were the synagogue of Satan, according to Christ in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. Luther, unfortunately, rather than getting his religion from Christ and his understanding of first century Judea from the apostles, paid more attention to Lyra and Bergensis. He goes on to say, this deep and cruel humiliation, which is terrible to read and to hear about, surely should have made them pliable and humble. Alas, they became seven times more stubborn, viler, and prouder than before. This was due in part to the fact that in their dis dispersion, they had to witness how the Christians daily grew and increased with their Messiah. The saying of Moses found in Deuteronomy 32.21 was now completely fulfilled in them. They have stirred me to jealousy with what is no God. So I will stir them to jealousy with those who are no people. And I must say that the words of Moses are applicable to Israel in another time and place and have a different fulfillment than Luther imagines. Those words are not applicable to Satan. They are not applicable to the Edomite Jews. He goes on to say, Likewise, as Hosea says, I will say to not my people, you are my people, but you are not my people, and I am not your God. And he quotes Hosea 22, verses 23 and 19, and he confounds them and quotes them kind of backwards and out of context. Paul, Paul of Tarsus, use those same words in regards to the Romans in Romans chapter 10 or maybe 11, I forget. And Paul of Tarsus understood that the Romans were the nations, were one of those nations which came from Abraham's loins who were descendants of the children of Israel. He explains that in Romans chapter 4 and elsewhere. In his epistle, Paul is applying the words of Hosea properly because they befit Israel. Cast off from Yahweh, they were not his people. Reconciled through Christ, they are the sons of the living God. They do not apply to the Edomite Jews. They apply to Israel being cast off before 700 B.C., which is where Hosea applied them. The words of Hosea are applicable to Israel and have a far different fulfillment than anything Luther imagines. If he'd have paid attention to Paul, he may have gotten it. Instead, he paid attention to Lyra and Bergensis. The words of Hosea are not, in this instance, applicable to the Edomite Jews because the people Hosea was talking to were God's people and would be reconciled in Christ. The Edomite Jews were being rejected in Christ because they were God's enemies. 
Paul taught these words and their fulfillment in the nations of Europe who turned to Christ. And those nations are indeed the anciently dispersed Israelites. Luther may have been overjoyed to learn that those words applied to him, but he was blinded by providence. He says, they stubbornly insisted on having their own Messiah, in whom the Gentiles should not claim a share. And they persisted in trying to exterminate this Messiah, in whom both Jews and Gentiles gloried. Technically, Christ was actually, Christ was a Messiah in whom both Israelite Judeans and Israelites of the dispersed nations gloried. Luther was blind to the literal truth of Scripture. And he says, everywhere throughout the Roman Empire, they intervened, and wherever they could ferret out a Christian in any corner, they dragged him out before the judges and accused him. They themselves could not pass sentence on him since they had neither legal authority nor power. They accused him until they had him killed. And often they did indeed take the law into their own hands. The book of Acts is example of that, exemplary of that, I should say. Thus they shed very much Christian blood and made innumerable martyrs, also outside the Roman Empire, in Persia, and wherever they could. Identity Christians, of course, understand all of these things in the context of Genesis 3.15. From Romans 16.20, we see that Paul of Tarsus, making allusions to Genesis 3.15, must have also understood these things in the context of Genesis 3.15. Tertullian, the Bishop of Carthage, I believe it was Carthage, and, and um, quite active, quite um, profuse Christian apologist. He, among others, informed us that the Jews were behind all of the all of the early Roman persecutions of Christians. To continue with Martin Luther. Still, they cling to the delusion that the Messiah must have appeared since the 70 weeks of Daniel had expired and the temple of Haggai had been destroyed. However, they disliked the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and therefore they went ahead and elevated one of their own, to the, one of their own number to be the Messiah. This came about as follows. They had a rabbi or Talmudist named Akiba, a very learned man, esteemed by them more highly than all the other rabbis, a venerable, honorable, gray-haired man. And, and Luther is just kissing this rabbi's buttocks, even though he lived 1,300 years before Luther. So Luther must have um, believed the testimonies of the Jews concerning this rabbi, which are found in the Talmud. 
He taught the verses of Haggai and of Daniel, also of Jacob in Genesis 49, with ardor, saying that there had to be a Messiah among the people of God since the time fixed by Scripture was at hand. Then he chose one, surnamed Kakba, which means a star. According to Bergensis, his right name, his right name, his correct name, was Hudoliba. He is well known in all the history books, where he is called Ben Koziba or Bar Koziban. He's referring to Simon Bar Kokhba. This man had to be their Messiah, and he gladly complied. All the people and the rabbis rallied about him and armed themselves thoroughly with the intention of doing away with both Christians and Romans. Now they had the Messiah fashioned to their liking and their mind, who was proclaimed by the aforementioned passages of Scripture. And let me say that the so-called Bar Kokhba rebellion, and Simon Bar Kokhba was its apparent leader. Of course, he had rabbis behind him. This rebellion took place approximately 132 to 136 A.D., and it was the third major revolt of the Judeans against Rome in 70 years. The first led to the destruction of Jerusalem under Titus and took place from 65 to 70 A.D., the second revolt was the Kedos War, and that was fought mostly in Alexandria, Cyrene, and Cyprus, about 115 to 117 A.D. This third war, the Bar Kokhba Revolt, resulted in the total expulsion of Jews from Jerusalem, and the Emperor Hadrian sought to destroy Judaism entirely after this third rebellion. Luther's comments concerning Simon Bar Kokhba and the rabbi and the promotion of Simon Bar Kokhba to the position of Messiah apparently do have historical support. However, once again, this represents God's contention with his enemies and not God's people. Luther goes on to say, this unrest began approximately 30 years after the destruction of Jerusalem under the reign of the emperor Trajan. And, and during the time of that emperor, or Trajan, it might be pronounced. The Kedos War took place, the second revolt. Luther says, Rabbi Akiba was Kokhba's prophet and spirit who inflamed and incited him and vehemently urged him on, applying all the verses of Scripture that deal with the Messiah to him before all the people and proclaiming, are the Messiah. He applied to him especially the saying of Balaam, recorded in Numbers 24, verses 17 through 19, by reason of his surname, Kokhba, or star. For that passage, 
A star shall come forth out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab, and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed, Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed, while Israel does valiantly. By Jacob shall dominion be... That was a proper sermon for thoroughly misleading such a foolish, angry, restive mob, which is exactly what happened. To ensure the success of this venture and guard against its going awry, that exalted and precious Rabbi Akiba, the old fool and simpleton, made himself Kakba's guardsman or armor-bearer, his armageur, as the history books have it. If I am not translating the term correctly, let someone else improve on it. The person is meant who is positioned beside the king or prince and whose chief duty it is to defend him on the battlefield or in combat, either on horse or foot. To be sure, something more is implied here, since, referring to this rabbi, he is also a prophet, a manzer, to use contemporary terms. So this is where the scepter of Judah and the Messiah now resided. They are sure of it. They carried on like this for some 30 years. Kakba always had himself addressed as King Messiah and butchered throngs of Christians who refused to deny our Messiah, Jesus Christ. His captains also harassed the Romans where they could. Especially in Egypt, they at one time defeated the Roman captain during the reign of Trajan. Now their heart, brain, and belly began to swell with conceit. God, they inferred, had to be for them and with them. They occupied a town near Jerusalem called Betir. In the Bible, it is known as Beth Haran, Joshua 10.10. Now, I do not find historical evidence that Bar Kokhba was elevated in this position, in this manner, for 30 years, but actually only for a few. That doesn't mean that he wasn't um, doing this for a longer period of time. Luther may be using the Talmud as his source of information. I suspect that he is, but I wouldn't go looking for it. Everything else which Luther states about him is surely valid, and especially about his persecution of Christians. Both Justin Martyr, the first century Christian apologist, and Eusebius, the fourth century ecclesiastical historian, attest to this in this regard. However, both men limit the context of their statements about Bar Kokhba to the time of Hadrian. And Eusebius specifically dates them to the 16th through the 19th years of the emperor's rule, which roughly correspond with the years 132 to 136 A.D. Luther goes on to say, at this point, they were convinced that their Messiah, King Kakba, was the Lord of the world and had vanquished the Christians and the Romans and carried the day. But the Emperor Hadrian sent his army against them, 
laid siege to Batir, conquered it, and slew Messiah and Prophet, Star in Darkness, Lord and Armor Bearer. Their own books lament, and this is where Luther gets it from. He's admitting he gets it from the Talmud. He doesn't get it from Josephus. Josephus didn't write this late. Josephus um, is dead by this time. Their own books lament that they were twice 80,000 men at Batir who blew the trumpets, who were captains over vast hosts of men, and that 40 times 100,000 men were slain. That would be 4 million. However, it seems to me that they are exaggerating enormously. I interpret this to mean that the two times roughly 80,000 trumpeters represent that many valiant and able-bodied men equipped for battle, each of whom would have been able to lead large bodies of soldiers in battle. Otherwise, this sounds too devilishly mendacious. And let me say that the Roman historian, Cassius Dio, he estimated the number of Jewish deaths in the Bar Kokhba revolt to about 580,000 people. And he is believed to be exaggerating. However, Luther is correct that the Jews themselves exaggerated the figure far beyond that number. The figures Luther gives above approach but do not quite reach the legendary six million figure. They come close. After this formidable defeat, they themselves called Kakba their lost Messiah, Kazba, which rhymes with it and has a similar ring, for thus write their Talmudists. You must not read Kakba, but Kazba. Therefore, all history books now refer to him as Kaziban. Kazba means false. His attempt had miscarried, and he had proved a false and not a true Messiah. Just as we Germans might say by way of rhyme, you are not a Deutscher, but a Kauscher, not a German, but a deceiver, not a Welsher, but a Felscher, meaning not a foreigner, of romance origin, but a falsifier. Of a usurer, I may say, you are not a borger, but a warger, not a citizen, but a slayer. Such rhyming is customary in all languages. Our Eusebius reports this story in his Ecclesiastical History, Book 4, Chapter 6. And yes, that is where we can find Eusebius's accounts of Bar Kokhba. Here he uses the name Bar Kokhbas, saying that this was an extremely cruel battle in which the Jews were driven so far from their country that their impious eyes were no longer able to see their fatherland, even if they ascended the highest mountains. Such horrible stories are sufficient witness that all of Jewry understood that this had to be the time of the Messiah. Since the 70 weeks had elapsed, Haggai's temple had been destroyed, and the scepter had been wrested from Judah. As the statements of Jacob in Genesis 49, of Haggai 2, and of Daniel 9, clearly indicated 
and announced. And we must say that the scepter has not been removed from Israelites in Jerusalem under the Romans any more or less than it had been under the Babylonians, the Persians, or the Greeks. Luther, again, is twisting his own interpretation of Genesis 49.10 to fit the impossible feat of keeping the scepter in Palestine until the time of Christ. It simply was not there. He goes on to say, God be praised that we Christians are certain and confident of our belief that the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, did come at that time. And this is true, but we do not have to pervert Haggai 2.7 and Genesis 49.10 to prove it. He says, to prove this, we have not only his miraculous deeds, which the law, I'm sorry, which the Jews themselves cannot deny, but also the gruesome downfall and misfortune because of the name of the Messiah, of his enemies who wanted to exterminate him together with all his adherents. How could they otherwise have brought such misery upon their heads if they had not been convinced that the time of the Messiah was at hand? And Luther's argument that Daniel 9 proves the time that the Messiah would come and that the Jews rejected the only Messiah legitimate Messiah who did come. Luther's argument there is, of course, a legitimate argument, and it does indict the Jews. But we still don't have to pervert Genesis 49.10 in order to prove it. It is telling, and I've noticed this often in in my um, reading of histories following the time of Christ, it is telling that early writers do not deny the accounts of the miracles of Christ, but Tacitus did attempt to claim similar feats for his own god, and his god was the emperor, Vespasian. So rather than deny the miracles accredited to Christ, Tacitus tried to claim similar miracles were performed by Vespasian. And he did. Back to Luther. And I think this does surely constitute coming to grief and running their heads, now for the second time, against the stone of offense and the rock of stumbling, to quote Isaiah 8.14. So many hundreds of thousands attempted to devour Jesus of Nazareth. But over this, they themselves stumbled and fell and were broken and snared and taken, as Isaiah says in 8.15. Since two such terrible and awesome attempts had most miserably failed, the first at Jerusalem under Vespasian, meaning 70 A.D., the other at Betir under Hadrian, and that's where Bar Kokhba was killed in 135 A.D. They surely should have come to their senses, had become pliable and humble, and concluded, God help us. How does this happen? The time of the Messiah's advent has 
words, in accord with the prophet's words and the promises come and gone. And we are beaten so terribly and cruelly over it, Luther putting this as dialogue in the mouth of the Jews. What if our ideas regarding the Messiah, that he should be a secular kakba, have deceived us, and he came in with a different manner and form? Is it possible that a Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, whom so many Jews and Gentiles adhere, who daily perform so many wondrous signs? The truth is the Jews do not adhere to Christ, as Luther defines the Judeans who converted to Christianity at the time of Christ. Jews do not adhere to Christ, or they would not have been Jews. The word Jew is not to be confused with the words Israel or Judah. That is Luther's problem. Israel and Judah are tribal designations. The word Jew was not originally a tribal or a racial designation. The word Jew is a perversion of the word Judea, which was a Roman provincial designation, or a Hebrew, a lay, because it was assigned by the Hellenistic Greeks, designation of the remnant that followed the Hebrew religion. And that included people of many different tribes and ethnicities by the time of Christ. And Luther, although he must have read Josephus at great length, simply didn't get that, even though it's attested to in the Gospels and in Josephus, and in the letters of Paul. Luther was evidently spending his time reading Lyra and Bergensis rather than Christ and Paul. Alas, they became seven times more stubborn and baser than before. Their conception of a worldly messiah must be right and cannot fail. There must be a mistake about the designated time. The prophets must be lying and fail rather than may. They will have nothing of this Jesus, even if they must pervert all of Scripture, have no God, and never get a Messiah. That's the way they want it. And, and that's the way it should be, because the devils know that there is one God, and they tremble as Peter attested, and as Matthew revealed. Luther just, he knew that these people acted like devils. He didn't realize that they were devils. Since they were beaten into defenseless impotence by the Romans, from that time on, they have turned against Scripture. Well, no, they turned against Scripture from the beginning. If they didn't turn against Scripture, they would have accepted Christ. From that time on, they have turned against Scripture and have boldly tried to take it from us and to pervert it with strange and different interpretations. They have digressed from the understanding of all their forefathers and prophets. They never had that understanding. And furthermore, from their own reason, because of this, they have lost so many hundreds of thousands of men, land, and city, and have fallen prey 
to every misery. They have done nothing these 1,400 years but take any verse which we Christians apply to our Messiah and violate it, tear it to bits, crucify it, and twist it in order to give it a different nose and mask. They deal with it as their fathers dealt with our Lord Christ on Good Friday, making God appear as the liar, but themselves as the truthful ones, as you heard before. They assign practically ten different interpretations to Jacob's saying in Genesis 49. Likewise, they know how to twist the nose of Haggai's statement. Here you have two good illustrations which show you how masterfully the Jews exegete the scriptures in such a way that they do not arrive at any definite meaning. And Christ tells us of the fate of these people who rejected him, and Luther should have done well to read it. He says in Luke, For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. Christ is responding to the questions which the apostles posed about the beauty of the temple and about the time of his coming. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations or the heathen. The King James translates it as Gentiles. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Well, we still have nations, so those times are not fulfilled. All things written being fulfilled, as Christ says, that must be a reference to Jeremiah, who spoke the same words about the same people in several places. Here we shall cite Jeremiah chapter 29, which is one of those places, from verse 17. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will send upon them the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten. And that's a reference back to the good and bad figs of Jeremiah chapter 24, which we will cite shortly. And I will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. And I will persecute them with the sword, with the famine, and with the pestilence and will deliver them to be removed to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and an astonishment and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations whither I have driven them, because they have not hearkened unto my word, saith Yahweh, which I sent unto them by my servants the prophets, rising up early and sending them. But you would not hear, saith Yahweh. Luther should have understood these words. There are good figs that would be built in Judah. 
There were bad figs that would be given the sword. They would be put to the sword. They would be taken into captivity after the days of vengeance, according to Christ in Luke chapter 1. When Jerusalem is accomplished, when Jerusalem is encompassed with armies, these be the days of vengeance. And he utters the same words concerning the same bad fig Judeans that Jeremiah utters. Luther should have understood these words. And he never even entertained the idea that these enemy that these were the enemies of God. Rather, he imagined that they could be Christians. But that's not what Christ said was the fate of these people. And it's not what Yahweh said through Jeremiah would be the fate of these people. Jews everywhere from the days of vengeance forward from 70 A.D., when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, from that time forward, Jews everywhere must be rejected by Christians according to the words of Christ as a curse and an astonishment and a hissing and a reproach. Why? Simply because they are Jews. They have no other fate, according to Jeremiah and according to Christ. Any other fate is contrary to the word of God. Luther goes on to say, they've also distorted in this way the passage from Daniel. I cannot enumerate all their shameful glosses, but shall submit just one. The one which Lyra and Bergensis consider to be the most famous and widespread among the Jews, from which they dare not depart on pain of losing their souls. It reads as follows. Gabriel says to Daniel, Seventy weeks of years are decreed concerning your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. Daniel 9.24. This is the text. Now their beautiful commentary follows. And Luther's referring to the commentary of the two converso Jews, Lyra and Bergensis. So we see where he gets his thinking from. It doesn't come from Jeremiah and Christ. And he says, quoting the commentary of Lyra and Bergensis, it will be, it will still be 70 weeks before Jerusalem will be destroyed and the Jews are led into exile by the Romans. This will happen so that they may be induced by this exile to depart from their sins. That may be, be that they may be punished for them, pay for them, render satisfaction, atone for them, and thus become pious eternally and merit the fulfillment of the messianic prophet 
promises, the reconstruction of the holy temple. I don't know where the hell that is in Scripture. The, the, the Christian temple is the body, and God dwells in the body of Christ and communes and walks amongst his people. There is no further temple building. Unless you're Lyra and Bergensis. Luther, Lyra, and Bergensis all properly assess the primary portions of the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. But the damage is done when we imagine the diaspora of the Jews to be that of God's people rather than that of God's enemies. God's people are indeed the anciently dispersed Israelites, the anciently dispersed people of Israel and Judah, the good figs of Judah. And those people, by the time of Christ, consisted of the nations where the devils were being scattered. God's people were dispersed long before the beginning of Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. The true Israelites were the Christian nations of the Near East, the Middle East, and Europe. and they can be traced from the dispersions in the cities of the Medes, in Babylonia, and in the, the regions of Assyria, and the other places to which they were brought. They can be traced. And Paul of Tarsus did that. And Paul of Tarsus brought his gospel to those nations. They were the true Israelites. The few true Israelites in Judea were only a remnant of the people of Yahweh. Lyra and Bergensis sowed this confusion. The people of the Jewish diaspora are not sent into exile for repentance. They were sent into exile to be a curse and a reproach. And therefore, Lyra and Bergensis, they themselves are curses and reproaches but Luther was taken by them. Luther goes on to say, here you perceive in the first place that the Jews' immeasurable holiness presumes that God will fulfill his promise regarding the Messiah, not because of his sheer grace and mercy, but because of their merit and repentance and their extraordinary piety. And how could or should God, that poor fellow, do otherwise? For when he promised the Messiah to Jacob, David, and Haggai out of sheer grace, he neither thought nor knew that such great saints, whose merits would exact the Messiah from his, would appear after 70 weeks and after the destruction of Jerusalem, that he would have to grant the Messiah not out of grace, but would be obliged to send him by reason of their great purity and holiness, when, where, 
and in the way that they desired, such is the imposing story of the Jews, who repented after the 70 weeks and became so pious. And of course, Luther says that all sarcastically. But there is no promise of mercy for the bad fig Jews. There is no promise of a Messiah for these people. Christ didn't come for the Edomites. He came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Luther, unfortunately, was blind to all of that. He goes on to say, You can easily infer that they did not repent, nor were they pious before and during the 70 weeks. As a result, the priests in Jerusalem all starved to death because there was no penance, no sin, or guilt offerings, which the priests needed for sustenance. All this was postponed and saved, for the penance and holiness, which were to begin after the 70 weeks, when there is no repentance, where there is no repentance or anything to repent for, there is no sin. But where then, we wonder, did the sin come from for which they have to repent after the 70 weeks, since they had atoned daily through so many sacrifices of the priests? ordained by Moses for this purpose, for all previous sin. Why do they have to begin to do penance now, after the 70 weeks, when temple, office, sacrifice for sins no longer exist? And of course, Luther is formulating sophistic arguments based on his own false premises. Luther also misses the entire testimony of Josephus, that it was the Sadducees who were ostensibly Edomites, and the Sadducees had oppressed the Levitical priests, had absconded their tithes, and frequently did starve them to death. But Luther cannot say that these things happened before the Edomite takeover of Jerusalem, which he completely misses or ignores because he seems to be ignorant of the Edomite, except for Herod himself, who Luther admits is an Edomite, Luther takes it for granted, or seems to take it for granted, that the rest of these people are Judah, and they certainly are not. I'm going to give an example from Joseph, Josephus' Antiquities, from Book 20, from lines 204 through 207, and Josephus says, Now, as soon as Albinus had come to the city of Jerusalem, this is after the death of um, Festus and, and, and Felix that we see, um, Porcius Felix, that we see in the book of Acts, that after they died, after um, Felix died, I believe, he was last. I think he was the second. Or later than Festus. I might have it backwards. After Felix died... Albinus succeeded him. So this is some time after Rome. Paul was sent to Rome. Now, as soon as Albinus had come to the city of Jerusalem, he used all his endeavors and care that the country might be kept in peace. And this by killing many of the Sicarii. Of course, that didn't last but a couple of years. But as for the high priest, Ananias, or Ananus, He increased in glory every day, and this to a great degree, and had obtained the favor and esteem of the citizens in a signal manner, for he was a great hoarder up of money. 
He therefore cultivated the friendship of Albinus and of the high priest, whose name was Jesus at this time, and of the high priest Jesus by making them presents. He also had servants who were very wicked, who joined themselves to the boldest sort of the people and went to the threshing floors and took away the tithes that belonged to the priests by violence and did not refrain from beating such as would not give these tithes to them. So the other high priests acted in like manner as did his servants, without anyone being able to prohibit them, so that some of the priests who were supported in olden days by those tithes died for lack of food. That's the testimony of Josephus. Josephus makes it of the Sadducees, because the sect of the Sadducees controlled the entire high priesthood from the time of Herod Archelaus, all the way to the time of Vespasian and the fall of Jerusalem. Josephus, again, fails to make the distinction between Edomite Jews, who cannot be Christians, the Judeans who mixed with the Edomite Jews, who were those Judeans that Jeremiah attests, would be handed over to the bad figs and the true Israelite Judeans who eventually became Christians or died in these wars. Josephus says, but the following even surpasses this. I'm sorry, Luther says, but the following even surpasses this. Gabriel says, according to their gloss, that the Jews will repent and become pious after the 70 weeks, so that the Messiah will come on account of their merit. Well and good, here we have it. If Gabriel is speaking the truth and not lying, then the Jews have now repented. They have become pious. They have merited the Messiah ever since the passing of those 70 weeks. For he says that all of this will be done by the Jews subsequent to the 70 weeks. What follows now? They confess, indeed they wail, that the Messiah has not come since the end of those 70 weeks, that he has not come to date, approximately 1,468 years later. Nor do they know when he will come. So they will have to confess that they have not done penance for any sin nor become pious during these 1,468 years following the 70 weeks, nor merited the Messiah. It follows that the angel Gabriel must be lying when he promises in God's behalf that the Jews will repent, be pious, and merit the Messiah after the 70 weeks. And of course, this is all based on false premises. The Jews simply are not Israel, nor are they Judah. Luther is looking for repentance from devils. If he believed the words of Christ, he would have understood that they were indeed devils. He goes on to say, in Leviticus 26.40 and in Deuteronomy 4.29 and 31, Moses, too, proves very clearly that they have never sincerely done penance for sin since the 70 weeks. In many beautiful words, he promises that God will return them to the fatherland, even if they are dispersed to the end of the heavens, etc. 
If they turn to God with all their heart and confess their sin, Moses utters these words as the spokesman of God, whom one must not accuse of lying. Since the Jews have not been returned to their country to date, it is proved that they have never repented for their sin with all their heart since the 70 weeks. So it must be falsehood when they are incorrectly when they incorrectly interpret Gabriel as speaking about their repentance. And the, these conditions of repentance given by Moses once again apply to Israel and Judah, but they do not apply to the Jews. In the interest of um, finishing this part eight of the Jews and their lies, we will continue. We also know that God is so gracious by nature that he forgives man in his sin in every hour in which man sincerely repents and is sorry for it. As David says in Psalm 32, 5, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Then thou did forgive the guilt of my sin. We also read that when the prophet Nathan rebuked David for a sin and a later thereupon declared, I have sinned against the Lord, he was immediately absolved by Nathan, who replied, The Lord has put away your sin, referring to 2 Samuel 2.13. Even if God, in many instances, does not remove the punishment as promptly as he did with David, he nonetheless assures man of the remission of his sin to Christ in 1 John chapter 2. And if neither prophet nor priest were available, an angel would have to appear instead and announce, your sins are forgiven you, so that a sinner in his sorrow and punishment might not lose heart and despair. We observe also how during the Babylonian captivity, God graciously and paternally consoles the people who confess their sins, enabling them to bear the punishment. Nor can the punishment endure forever. It must have its definite time, measure, and end where genuine contrition and repentance are found. But there is no remission of sin for these Jews, no prophet to console them with the insurance of such forgiveness, no definite time limit for their punishment, but only interminable wrath and disfavor, devoid of any mercy. So it is not only an unmitigated lie, but also an impossibility to understand Gabriel's promises in terms of their repentance, much less of their merit and righteousness. And the shame is that Luther understood that the Jews were incorrigible, that they would never repent, that they would forever have wrath and disfavor, but he didn't realize is that they were devils and they were not Israel. These Jews are the bad fig Canaanites and Edomites and the remnant of Judah who Jeremiah says would be given over to them in Genesis I'm sorry, in Jeremiah chapter 24. They were always to be a curse and a reproach until, because they are the tares of the parable, until they go to the lake of fire. They are the tares of the field. And Luther does not believe the New Testament because he followed Lyra and Bergensis instead. And that is very clear in his theology. He goes on to say, but why should we waste so many words with so much time? The land of Canaan was hardly as big as a beggar's arms or as a crust of bread in comparison with the empire of the whole world. 
And Luther did not perceive that by the time of Christ, the seed of Abraham had already inherited the whole world, meaning the Adamic Oikumene, the Scythians of Northern Europe. They were Israel. The Romans, the Phoenician tribes called Celts in the British Isles and Western Europe, they were all Israel. They were all descended from the children of Israel for the most part. They had Shepetai tribes mixed in among them in fulfillment of the words of Moses in Genesis chapter 9, that Shepeth would dwell in the tents of Shem. But they were all Israel. The Parthians who ruled over the east, over Persia and Mesopotamia, they were Israel, even though they were mixed in with the Persians and remnants of the Assyrians and other Adamic tribes and some non-Adamic and Canaanite tribes as well. They were still, the Parthians were Israelites. The three predominant tribes of the world, the Germanic Scythians to the north, the Romans in the west, and the Parthians in the east, were all the seed of Israel. And the seed of Israel already inherited all of the other Genesis 10 Adamic nations as the promise to Abraham read that it had already come to pass by the time of Christ. Luther could not see that. He was blind. He was blinded by providence and by the Jews who we followed in biblical exegesis. Luther says, yet they did not merit even this land, meaning Canaan, through their repentance or righteousness. Israel, that's another thing. Luther misses, Israel does not get anything because they merit it. Rather, Israel gets everything because of the promises to the fathers. Luther says, thus Moses declares in Deuteronomy 9.4, and that phrase, that, that passage says, speak thou not in thine heart. After that, Yahweh thy God has cast them out from before thee, meaning the Canaanite tribe, saying, for my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh does drive them out before me. In other words, we don't get it for our righteousness, but because we are favored. The children of Israel are favored, and the children of Canaan were wicked. Thus Moses declares in Deuteronomy 9.4 that they were not granted the possession of the land because of their righteousness, but it was given to them, a stiff-necked and disobedient people, that is, a very sinful and unworthy people, solely by reason of God's gracious promise. Although Hosea, referring to Hosea 11.1, 1, and Balaam, referring to Numbers 24.5, Praise them for being at their peak of piety at that time. Hosea says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. That's not a praise that the Israelites are at their peak of piety. That is God saying that he loved Israel in spite of how they acted. 
Numbers 24, 5, Balaam states, How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. That's not a statement of the piety of the children of Israel. That's just a statement that God preferred the children of Israel and considered their tents and tabernacles goodly. In fact, in, throughout the book of Numbers and throughout the Exodus, the children of Israel are uprated for doing things like worshiping the whole host of heaven, for engaging in idolatry, for joining themselves to the daughters of Moab. So it's not for Israel's piety that Israel is favored. It's for the sake of Yahweh's promise to Abraham. It's so that Yahweh God can be glorified and that man learn that he is God and that they should be obedient to him. So Luther, his theology and his reading of these verses is not agreeable. Not to me. He says, they still had Moses, Aaron, the divine worship, prophets, God himself with his miracles spread from heaven, water from the rock, clouds by day, pillars of fire by night, indestructible shoes and garments, etc. And I would say that's fine. They did have these things, but these people were not the Jews. And these dreary dregs, this stinking scum, this dried up froth, this moldy leaven and boggy morass of Jewry, should merit on the strength of their repentance and righteousness the empires of the whole world, that is, the Messiah and the fulfillment of the prophecies, though they possess none of the aforementioned items and are nothing but rotten, stinking, rejected dregs of their father's lineage. And, and well, yeah, that describes the Jews in part, but they're not Israel and Judah. In part, they're of Judah and Israel, but they're not Israel and Judah. Luther is unwittingly speaking of his own people, who are indeed true Israel. And today and for the past several decades, they have proven his words to be accurate, maybe for the past couple of centuries. But none of the things in Numbers or in the Exodus or in Deuteronomy or in Hosea, have anything to do with today's Jews. Unless it's talking about the Edomites and the Canaanites and the enemies of God. In brief, Moses and all true Israelites understood those verses regarding the Messiah as signifying that all this would be given them out of sheer grace and mercy and not because of penitence and merit. And, and Luther should count all European Christians within that group and none of the Jews. This we gathered from the cited verses of Jacob, David, and Haggai. Likewise, Daniel does not ask, desire, or think that such a glorious promise of the 70 weeks should be revealed to him, but it is granted to him out of grace, far and far beyond his asking. From this you can learn that fine repentance the Jews practiced and still practice after those 70 weeks. They began it with lies and blasphemies in which they continued and still persist. Whoever wishes 
may imitate the Jews' example of repentance and say, God and his angels are liars. They speak about the things that are not. Then you will merit grace as they merit the Messiah. And, and Luther recognizes the devils, but he can't figure out that they are truly devils, not spirits kindred to God and Christ. If they weren't so stone blind, their own vile external life would be would indeed convince them of the true nature of their penitence, for it abounds with witchcraft, conjuring signs, figures, and the tetragrammaton of the name, that is, with idolatry, envy, and conceit. Moreover, they are nothing but thieves and robbers who daily eat no morsel and wear no thread of clothing which they have not stolen and pilfered from us by means of their accursed usury. Thus they live from day to day together with wife and child by theft and robbery as arch thieves and robbers in the most impenitent security. For a usurer is an arch thief and a robber who should rightly be hanged on the gallows seven times higher than other thieves. And, and um, well, Luther has the Jews pegged there. It's a shame that he thought that they were Israel because they are not. It's funny, George Washington was a little easier on the poor Jews. And he's recorded as having made a very similar statement in his maxims where he says, I would to God that some of the most atrocious in each state, meaning atrocious of the Jews, was hanged upon a gallows five times as high as the one prepared for Haman. So Washington may have read Martin Luther for his own inspiration. Indeed, God should prophesy about such a beautiful penitence and merit from heaven through his holy angel and become a flagrant, blasphemous liar for the sake of the noble blood and circumcised saints who boast of being hallowed by God's commandments, although they trample all of them underfoot and do not keep one of them. And the truth is that God cannot lie. But he never spoke of penitence for the bad fig Canaanite Edomite Jews. Jeremiah prophesied of these so-called noble men, as Luther calls them, of Judah, who became mixed with the bad figs thus. Jeremiah sees two baskets of figs, a basket of good figs and a basket of bad figs. In his vision in Jeremiah chapter 24, and from verse 8 he says, or the word of God says, And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Surely thus saith Yahweh, For I will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and his princes, and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and them that dwell in the land of Egypt. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places, whether I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. And 
that is talking about the people of Judah who were given over by God to bad figs. The bad figs being the Canaanites and the Edomites of Palestine. And they were indeed followed by the sword, the famine, and the pestilence until they were consumed from off that land in the revolts against the Romans, which we see in the words of Christ this same language when he says, These are the days of vengeance in which all the things written should be fulfilled. And he's talking about this very chapter of Jeremiah and the prophecy of Daniel in chapter 9 where it says that after his cutting off the people of the prince, the people of the Messiah, the Romans would come and destroy the city. Luther just didn't understand this because he took it for granted that the Jews were God's people and that the diaspora of the Jews was to call them to repentance. No, it wasn't. The Jews were God's enemies and the the diaspora of the Jews were so that God's enemies could be a reproach and a proverb and a taunt and a curse in all places where they were driven. Luther continues, the passage in Daniel continues, Know therefore and understand that from the time when the order goes forth to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It shall be built again with the streets and walls. But in a troubled time, and after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah shall be killed and shall have nothing. And that's Luther's reading of Daniel 9.25 and forward. And for this, as Paul had said, God would crush Satan under the feet of the Romans. That's who the Jews are. With this thought, Martin Luther ends part eight of his essay on the Jews and their lives. We will continue this critique with part nine in the near future, Yahweh willing. Next Friday, Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, part two. Maybe we'll get through chapter one. Next Saturday, explaining two seed lines, primordial two seed line, part three. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.